Hi, this is Jonathan Clemens, Director of Financial Education here at Creative Planning in Overland Park, Kansas. And with me is Peter Malouk, President of the firm. It's September 3rd. It's the day after Labor Day. Everybody's heading back to school, back to college, back to work. And that brings us to our first topic this morning, paying for college. So if somebody comes to you and says, Peter, I got a toddler. You know, she's going to be heading off to college in 18 years. I want to make sure that I can pay for my daughter's college education. What should I be doing? So I think the, the first thing we would do is we prioritize goals. So usually that's not the only goal people have. They also have a goal to retire. So we would want to have a plan that accounts for both of those things. And assuming we have the luxury of having enough cash flow to fund both, we would you know, take care of the retirement with 4K and other things we've talked about in the past. But with education... For most folks, the best tool is a 529 plan. So you open a 529 plan for each of your kids. Um, these are very state-specific. States have uh, different plans. They have different laws uh, for terms of tax breaks. Some states, you get an income tax deduction if you contribute to the plan. Some states, you don't. States have different limits on what you can put in there. So this is something that, unfortunately, uh, has become a very complicated area of the law for something that should be very, very simple for people to figure out. It's very disappointing. It's a great example of when politicians have an idea of how to help people and find a way to confuse everybody at the same time. But if you get some reasonably good advice, you're going to get to the right 529 plan. And sometimes it makes sense to leave your state and go to a lower cost plan. So you really want to find a, a plan that we can get a break and we can have very low cost and a, a good contribution limit. And then we want to contribute enough to, to be able to meet most of the needs in the future. And the reason I say most is if you overfund this plan, you know, let's say that you get enough money in there for your kid to go to the, the college that you had targeted, but then they get a grant or a scholarship. Uh, well, now we've got extra money in the plan. It's a nice problem to have, but if you take it back out, you're going to pay a penalty in taxes. There's other solutions. You can direct it to another kid. You can direct it to a grandkid or somebody else, but there's no need. We want to make sure you don't overfund it, especially because most people have multiple goals, not just uh, not just one goal. So one of the things that you mentioned, which was interesting, was, you know, uh, beyond uh, making sure you have, uh, you know, making sure you're funding retirement, that should always be your top financial priority. Uh, you mentioned financial aid, scholarships, grants. One of the really tricky parts, I think, about funding college accounts is looking forward 18 years and saying, you know, will we be eligible for substantial amounts of financial aid? You know, I suspect that most people who are listening to this podcast are going to have pretty decent incomes. They probably financial aid is not going to be a major consideration. But for anybody who has a relatively modest income, even funding a 529 plan may not be the right choice because 529 plans, while they're looked at relatively favorably in the financial aid formulas, they are still assessed yes. and they will reduce the amount of financial aid you get. So if you're on a relatively modest income, I would say, you know, maybe you should just fund those retirement accounts. Maybe you should focus on paying down the mortgage, you know, put the money in an IRA, you know, even just build up your regular taxable account. Do all of these things rather than necessarily put the money in an account dedicated to paying for the child's college education. Right. And there are a lot of strategies around this where some people have, you know, their parents 
parents make contributions to 529 plans or grandparents, and they try to get it to count less than the financial aid formulas. And so it's one of these areas that's become a, a quite a labyrinth and has a lot of decision-making. If you go to the other end of the spectrum from the, the folks you were talking about to say the very affluent, they shouldn't use 529 plans because it uses their annual exclusion. You know, if you put 15000 a 529 plan for your kid's college, that counts as the 15000 you've given them every year. It'd be better to give that 15000 to a, a trust for your kids. And when the kids go to college, you, you are able to keep giving them 15000 and pay for college directly because paying for college directly doesn't count as part of the annual exclusion. So whether you're on the modest end of the spectrum that you were referencing or the middle where we started or the ultra fluent that I just covered, um, you have different, there's different answers to all of those questions. You know, I would just uh, throw in uh, two other things to keep in mind. One is, you know, the financial aid rules are constantly in flux. You know, there's a good chance that down the road, perhaps 529 plans will be assessed more heavily, or perhaps, you know, down the road, they won't be assessed at all. The rules are constantly in flux and you just don't know how how they're going to play out. Uh, but the other thing I would mention is that, you know, the one account you probably don't want to fund for your kid at this point is a custodial account. If you're looking to pay for college, a custodial account, which was, when I was raising my kids, the account of choice, mm -hmm. is no longer the account of choice. One, you know, that money counts as the child's asset, which means it's assessed very heavily from a financial aid point of view. And two, the kid gets control of that money right. when they reach the age of <laughs> I, maturity. I make that number one. <laughs> That's the biggest problem with that one. Well, my kids know that, you know, <laughs> they, they would be cut out of the will if they took their custodial account and used it to buy the Ferrari. Right. And in any case, there wasn't enough in the account for a Ferrari. Right. But, uh, but that is a risk. Yes, uh, for sure. And I think we, when you talk about financial aid, you know, one of the topics we want, we're going to talk about today is the student loans and student debt. And financial aid has really helped fuel this problem. So, you know, college used to cost a certain amount of money. The government comes in and says, we're going to help you all go to co college. We're going to give you really low interest rate loans. So what do the colleges do? They raise their prices. I mean, because now people have, there's more people that have access to money and it's very, the people that had access before now have cheaper access to money. So it created this acceleration of education inflation where we have inflation every year has been around 2%, but education has been more than double or triple that because you have all this extra money thrown in the system and it's thrown in at a really low cost. So again, the government trying to come in and help people out and actually creating higher education prices for all and creating a kind of a debt culture uh, when it comes to college. So we've encouraged kids to take on student loans with these cheap rates and with these tax breaks. That in turn has allowed colleges to raise prices. We've ended up with students walking out of college on average with $30,000 of debt. And, you know, I've heard many horror stories of people who have six figures of undergraduate debt. And now, and now we have politicians suggesting, well, Let's forgive it all. Right, right. And I think the other thing that we had is we have all of these schools that came out of nowhere that were really businesses that said, hey, the government's going to give all these loans. Let's go set up uh, a college. And these hundreds of these popped up all over the country that were kind of like fake schools. And just recently, the government said, you know, we're no longer going to let you know students get loans to go to these schools. And these schools are closing. And these kids have the debt. I see a solution where what you're probably going to see is they're not going to forgive everybody's student loans. And there's a lot of issues with that, or certainly I hope not. I don't think that's fair, and I'll, I'll get to why. But I think that um, 
they, I think what they will do is they'll say, hey, if you went to this set of colleges, um, we might forgive those loans. And I, and I think you'll see the banks participate in the cost of that. But I think the problem with forgiving student loans is you have, let's say you have two kids from the same neighborhood, and one kid's mowing lawns, mulching, interning, you know, working you know, 40 hours a week, saving money, and then you've got uh, their parents working three jobs, and then they pick a school that maybe isn't their first choice, but it costs less. You got another kid doesn't work at all. He's just you know getting hammered all summer long and and uh, ha- hanging out and partying. And then uh, they pick a school that's more expensive. They they go out of state to school, and then they go get um, art history in Romania in the 1700s as their major. And so this latter kid has a hundred thousand of debt. The first kid has no debt because the family killed themselves took their second choice and now we're going to go forgive the 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 kids uh, loan that it, it's not a fair outcome so it's not equitable and i think the second you start to have policies like that um you are going to have a lot of other unfair uh, policies you, you got the person who got a, somebody pr- discussed forgiving car loans which is literally the most ridiculous thing i've, I've ever heard you somebody's driving around with a old junker and somebody else bought a, a new car and now we're going to go forgive this guy's this guy's loan we have to have have a system that encourages responsible behavior. So there are a lot of problems with the student loan system, and it needs to be fixed. There were a lot of sham colleges that started because of that system, and they need to be shut down. Uh, but we can't punish the people that did all the right things and and reward the people that did it. Now, there are a ton of people with a ton of debt that did all the right thing. That that's So I don't want to be misunderstood there. And uh, the systems just didn't serve them well. But the outcome of saying, we're going to forgive all of that and, and not forgive the others is interesting. There was a uh, an African-American billionaire who recently at a at college uh, graduation announced he was going to pay off everyone's debt. And they were showing all the faces of the kids, you know, that were all super excited. And what, what I was curious with the faces I wanted to see were the kids that delayed going to college for two or three years and saved up the money and, and worked, th- you know, <laughs> two or three jobs. And their roommate, who didn't do any of that, just had all their, their debt forgiven. I, I, there are those spaces, too. We're not hearing a lot about about that, about those folks. Yeah, I think there are t- two things that I would add to this. One is, you know, when we think about student debt, it's, and we say, oh, student debt is the problem. It's rather like saying insurance premiums are the problem. You know, insurance premiums are not the problem. Healthcare costs are the problem, and that's why you end up with high insurance premiums. Right. College costs are the problem, which is why you've ended up with this ridiculous amount of student debt. So let's, if we're going to address the problem, let's address the real problem, which is college costs, not the debt that has become as a consequence of that. And maybe what we need is greater transparency in college pricing, you know, getting away from this ridiculous system where there's, you know, the list price, but nobody pays the list price because of, you know, grants and, you know, other sources of financial aid. You know, attacking student debt is, you know, attacking the symptom, not the problem. Right. And, and I think politically, we've become so insane that we can't find a, the very basic common sense solution. So you have on, on the right, not all the right, but the, the very far, far right, you know, we shouldn't pay, you know, for anything ever. And then you've got on the far left, literally, we should forgive everybody's debt. Everybody should go wherever they want for free all the time. It's just it's it's crazy. And this idea that we can't pay for education is a little silly. We pay already for kindergarten, all of grade school, middle school and high school. Somehow we're surviving. No one politically is promoting the idea 
that Americans should pay for grade school or high school. So is it insane to think that we could have maybe a college in every state that was close to free, you know, $2,500 a, a semester or something? It's not that far off from where some state colleges are, are already and say, Look, we're going to have each state's going to have one of these. The federal government's going to subsidize it a little bit. And, you know, problem solved. If you choose to go to some school that's 50000 a year, God bless you. Deal with your debt. You know, grow up and deal with your debt because you've got an outlet here. We can give people that outlet. The, the country can afford to give them that outlet. So there's, as with most political issues, there's a very reasonable, probably, solution in the middle that, that can make it where no one in America can say they can't get an affordable, good college education. And, and we don't feel the need uh, to be forgiving that either. I would just add one more thing, and I'm, I'm going to climb on my soapbox a little bit for this one, which is— I just it, got off mine, so I've got, you've got room. Yeah, that's, <laughs> thanks for the extra space right. here. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talk about these kids like, you know, they were, you know, dumbasses for taking on, you know, thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 of college debt. But the question in my mind is, where were the parents? Yeah. What— were the parents doing while well, these kids were signing up for a college they couldn't afford that was going to involve taking on these tens of thousands of dollars of college loans? Now, I realize that not every parent can afford to pay for their kid's college education, but that does not mean at that point that you say, okay, I have no influence over my child's decision and I should just let them go ahead and make whatever choice they want. The parents need to stay involved. If your child is going to be studying to become a social worker and end up with $100,000 of student loans, and you don't try to guide them towards a lower-cost college, you are abrogating your responsibility as a parent. It is simply bad parenting, and you should be ashamed of yourself. So for goodness sake, even if you can't help your kids pay for college, help them with your advice. Guide them towards some sort of sensible choice so they end up spending their 20s and 30s regretting the, the financial decision they made around college. Agreed. And I think one of the things we talked about that I'll just uh, tack on to is the, the amount of debt. And really, it's the amount of debt relative to what you're getting. So if somebody's got $100,000 of, of debt and they're a doctor, well, great. I'll do that all day long. You've been guaranteed employment for forever. You're destined to become a millionaire, even if you only contribute to your retirement plan. Um, you're, you know, that's totally worth it. Whereas $50,000 of debt with a degree that doesn't translate into a job in today's economy is too much. And so that's the other factor people should be looking at is, you know, what does this particular degree, what's it going to translate into be in terms of earning power? So when I was growing up, you know, one of the things that my parents really valued was education, and it was made clear to my siblings and to me that you know wherever we wanted to go to college, my parents would pay. It was you know, part of our family's value system. And so, you know, when I raised my kids, it was exactly the same. It was wherever you want to go, you know, we will cover the tab. And you know, I bring this up because before we were we started recording the show, we were talking about the biases that we sort of inherited from our parents and that we bring into the adult world. And that's a sort of, that's a big biases, bias of mine. But I know uh, you've had, uh, you see this every day when you talk to clients. Yeah, I think when, when clients come in, really their financial situation is partially derivative of, of the job and things like that. But the second big component, if you have two folks that are equal, the biggest component will be the biases they bought out from being a kid. You know, so some folks grew up in an environment where there was nothing. You know, it was it was very tough to get by, and there was this great fear 
of losing money. It doesn't matter how much money they have, they see a path back to the way things were and they are very nervous about that path. It causes them to become very conservative with the way they invest. And it also causes them to really not enjoy their money. I mean, to really be able to spend and enjoy their money. You know, the whole other end of the spectrum, you see people that never really had to match a dollar. They maybe they didn't earn the money themselves, never had that first job and they never had to match that to, to spending. And they really don't, they've never seen a negative consequence um, because they never earned anything themselves and grew up in an environment where it didn't matter. And so they've never had the negative repercussion. And we've got clients who we cannot get them to stop spending. We tell them, look, here's, let's make this as simple as possible. If you take this out and, and with this pile of money and you don't put money in, you're going to run out of money in seven years, but they can't comprehend that is true because they've never experienced a time where they, where things haven't worked out. And the, the biases are very, very powerful. It's amazing how we take on uh, what we learn from our parents, I think. Yeah, well, a couple of things that uh, I, you know, I remember hearing from, you know, my parents was you know, them talking about inflation all the time. And I must confess, you know, I spent, you know, most of the 80s and 90s waiting for inflation to come back. <laughs> and of course, you know, it still hasn't happened. And then, you know, because I grew up in the 70s, you know, the ticket to wealth was to own real estate, and preferably heavily mortgaged real estate, because real estate prices are rising with inflation. Meanwhile, with you know, every uptick in inflation, the cost of servicing that mortgage was going down. And so I remember my mother saying, you know, you cannot go wrong with real estate. Right. And it's stuck in my mind. And you know, at the time, and I thought, oh, this is the secret to financial success. But you know, now I look back at it, and it, it says to me, you know, this is how you know people get so stuck in the present, you know, and b believe stuff just because it was true at one moment in time. And you know, if you stick to these beliefs that are really driven by momentary events, you know, you can end up making financial mistakes, you know, for the rest of your life by just repeating what you thought was successful. Yeah, I think our financial framing is a, a, a stretch an analogy over to music. Like I, I've found that a lot of people have a period of time they listen to mu the music, whether they're listening to the 70s or 80s or 90s or whatever. And I have a theory that that the type of music you listen to it was your favorite part of your life, right? So if you're listening to 70s music, that maybe that's the part that you, that's, you associate it with the best time of your life or 80s and so on. And I think that it's the same thing with our financial framework. There's some period of our life, there, there were formative years, I think the teen, teen years and early 20s where that gets locked in. And, and we're either validating that or trying to overcome that framework for for the rest of our lives. And and so I, I, I really, I think that's a very, very powerful bias. And if people can become aware of it, they can start to see how it, it can encourage or infect uh, their thinking about money. All right, Peter. Well, I think we probably ran through our, our t time allotment for this time around. So, as usual, we'll finish with the tip of the month. So, what is your tip of the month? So my tip of the month is don't insure things you don't need to insure. So insurance is designed as, is basically something like, hey, I can't, if, if I had to pay for this, it would be painful for me to pay for it. And so I'm going to transfer that risk to a third party and I'm going to pay them 
some money to do that. So I expect to lose on the math formula. Uh, but the idea is I, I'm protecting myself against a big loss. So if you've got a, a junker car that's worth $2,000 and it would not be a problem for you to write a $2,000 check to replace it, we don't need to insure that car. It's the physical car. We, we still need insurance in case we hit another driver or there's health care, but we don't need to insure that car itself. If you're buying uh, some technology, you know, TV and a, a sound system and it's $8,000, you don't need the warranty unless you can't afford to replace it. The idea is to, to cover the parts that would hurt. And an example is we might still insure a home, but we don't need to insure every dollar of it. So most claims are 5000 or less. If you've got a deductible that's $1,000 and you're paying a premium, know that a lot of the premium you're paying for is to cover that that small claim, that five or $10,000 claim. If you can afford to pay that, talk to your insurance agent and say, hey, if I raise my deductible from 1000 to 5000 or 10000 will I save a lot of money? Oftentimes you will. And that makes sense because you can cover that part of the risk. Now, sometimes the, the math doesn't work out. It varies from company to company and zip code to zip code. Sometimes they go, hey, you'll only save $30, in which case you should leave your deductible low. But look at all of your insurance and say, do I need this? And do I need this much? Or can I raise the deductible? And my tip for the month ahead, Peter, is to encourage people to draw up a letter of last instructions. This is essentially a guide to your estate for your family and your other heirs. I mean, this isn't a document that has any real legal standing. It's not like you need to talk to an attorney to draw it up. It's not like you get it notarized. It really is your chance to help your family settle your estate after you're done. And you can you can go any which way you want on it. I mean, you can list your usernames and passwords for your accounts. You can list personal effects and who you want to have each of these personal effects stuff that's probably of not great value, but may have strong sentimental value. You want to make sure that they go to particular people. It's also a chance for you to explain why you've left the money the way you have, just in case you know, you're leaving slightly more to one child over another. This way, people can understand the reasoning behind your estate. You might also mention the assets that you own in case there's a safe deposit box or something else so that people know where to find the assets. And finally, you, know, you might want to suggest well, you know, here's my obituary, and these are the newspapers or the college magazines or the school magazines that I want it sent to. It's really, you can go any which way you want with this letter of lost instructions, but the more detailed it is, the happier your family will be. Agreed. So that's it for this month, Peter. We are down the middle. This commentary is provided for general information purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. Past performance of any market results is no assurance of future performance. The information contained herein has been obtained from sources deemed to be reliable but is not guaranteed.